You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. Zuckerberg asked the world to start using our real names on the internet. Prior to that, it never happened. And the world kind of ran breakneck speed towards that. At the time, you still couldn't correlate a whole lot of data back to an individual. Still wasn't a significant issue until January of this year when ChatGDP comes out and all of these tools that now can correlate massive amounts of data extremely quickly. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hey there, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben has the story of a proposed law regulating IoT devices from an unlikely sponsor. I've got the story of a novel proposal to limit social media platforms. And later in the show, my conversation with Ken Cox from custom private cloud provider Hosterian, We're discussing the dark side of AI and how to safeguard your privacy. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, we've got some interesting stories to share this week. Why don't you kick things off for us here? So I love my story this week. It is about a proposed bill in the United States Senate called the Smart Devices Act, and it is sponsored by none other than Senator Ted Cruz. Okay. Not known as being an advocate for any type of digital privacy, although he might uh, disagree with that contention, Hmm. Um, but certainly not somebody who frequently co-sponsors bills with members of the opposite political party, which is what he's done here. Really? So the Smart Devices Act uh, would introduce a layer of regulation for smart devices. Mm -hmm. It would require the manufacturers to put a warning on these devices to clearly disclose whether these appliances have listening devices, cameras, or other spying technologies. Uh, The bill would not apply to cell phones, laptops, or other devices that a consumer would, quote, reasonably expect to include a camera or microphone, But it's for things like your air fryer, Um, which you might not expect is uh, spying on you. But we've had all of these incidents where 
Smart devices have listening capabilities or cameras that end up really confusing consumers. Sometimes they could be used in law enforcement investigations. Mm. And so Senator uh, Ted Cruz has proposed a bill. Uh, He is the ranking Republican on the Senate Commerce Committee, and he has proposed this with the chair of that committee, a Democrat, Maria Cantwell of Washington. Uh, And the bill is also co-sponsored by liberal Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock. So it is Quite a coalition. Unlikely bedfellows. Uh, Extremely (laughs) unlikely bedfellows. Okay. Uh, They brought this bill to the Senate Commerce Committee, Hmm. and it was approved by a voice vote. So there was no opposition. Uh, You think that this is kind of a common sense piece of legislation. It's not an overly burdensome requirement on these companies. They just have to put a notice that would reasonably inform consumers uh, that their devices had cameras listening capabilities that might not be uh, immediately recognizable to the people who have purchased them. Okay. So where this gets interesting is Senator Ted Cruz went to the Senate floor to extol the virtues of this bill. Mm -hmm. Uh, He talked about what's happened in Texas, uh, the state that he represents, where energy companies, uh, because they've had access to people's smart thermostat devices, are controlling the thermostat from centralized locations Against the knowledge and perhaps the wishes of Ted Cruz's constituents in Texas. Hmm. Basically, and my energy company does this here in in Maryland, (laughs) uh, preventing me from turning my thermostat down to a particular temperature when the system is strained. So there'll be a cap at 76 degrees uh, for air conditioning as opposed to how I prefer it, which is, you know, icebox level. 65. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, and also the, and I'm signed up for that program as well, but in exchange for that, you get some kind of a discount or something too. Yeah, no, I I enjoy the discount. I mean, it makes my uh, energy bill go from extremely expensive to just very expensive. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, you know, I'll, I'll take it. Sure. Part of it does bother me that like I can't control my own, I mean, just the concept of it that I can't control my own energy consumption. Yeah. Um, and I think for somebody like Ted Cruz, who has made a career out of the government being too involved in people's business, I think it's appropriate for him to be concerned that some large entity is stepping in for the place of individual decision-making. Yeah. And in this case, it's being state-regulated uh, energy companies. And, and you know, regardless of what you think about Ted Cruz, uh, and I would say personally, not a fan. Yeah. But I think you have to acknowledge when it comes to, you know, speaking on the floor of the Senate, he's a he's a skilled orator. Oh, yeah. I mean, the guy went to Princeton, uh, Harvard Law School, yeah. I believe. Uh, very smart guy, was the Texas Solicitor General. So, I mean, he knows, he certainly knows how to make arguments. Yeah. Uh, so what the really interesting thing that happened here, and I will admit that I only discovered this by going down the YouTube algorithm rabbit hole. <laughs> okay. Is that Ted Cruz brought this to the Senate floor, uh, gave a speech extolling the virtues of this legislation, then asked for unanimous consent that the bill be um, read, considered, and passed uh, and sent over to the House of Representatives. Mm. And the unanimous consent request was rejected by or objected to by none other than Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky. Hmm. So Rand Paul's contention is that this bill would actually take power away from the consumer, that the consumer should decide which products to purchase based on the type of notification that the consumer gets. So if they buy an air fryer that isn't upfront about um, the services that they're using, whether it has a camera or listening technology, then 
consumers and consumer groups through the free market can demand products that are more protective of individual privacy. Ah, okay. And Rand Paul and Ted Cruz, two senators who usually align on everything, got into a real argument, a real you-know-what match on the Senate floor (laughs) about this legislation. Paul was basically saying that uh, this is introducing a new unnecessary layer of government regulation, that it was going to end up driving costs up on consumers. Ted Cruz responded by saying, that's absurd. This is a de minimis regulation. We're not preventing these companies from having cameras uh, or listening devices or related technology on their devices. Uh, We are just having an option or having a requirement that consumers be adequately informed of these features. Mm-hmm. And uh, this fight went on for quite some time. I In our show notes, we'll post a 10-minute YouTube video of the two of them sparring, which for nerds like myself is uh, is quite a 10-minute uh, display of, of entertainment. Well, um, what did you make of their respective arguments? I mean, I certainly found myself far more sympathetic to Senator Cruz. I do think this is a de minimis regulation and simple transparency in giving the consumers the knowledge that the product they're purchasing has the ability to, I, to, for lack of a better word, spy on them in their own home, I think is very reasonable. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be much of an added cost for these companies to add that type of warning. Many of them already do. Uh, in one way or another, uh, include that on various disclosures. Mm-hmm. Um, I think... At least for my taste, the libertarian position on this, which is, um, you know, let the market market regulate itself. And if consumers really desire this level of transparency and privacy protections, they will purchase devices from manufacturers who include these protections. I think is a little naive. Right. How how could they make that decision in uh, if they're simply ignorant of the, the state of things? Exactly. I don't think they can. Uh, yeah. So I was in the very rare position of just nodding my head to Ted Cruz when he was <laughs> making a speech on the Senate floor, which it, it felt very weird to me. <laughs> then there's the extra matter, and I know this is really getting in the weeds here, of Senate procedure. So huh. Ted Cruz made the point that if this actually went up for a vote, it would probably be 99 to 1, with Rand Paul being the only senator in opposition. That okay. might be a slight exaggeration. I could probably nitpick you know, maybe you got up to five senators in opposition. But I think the general point stands that this passed the Senate Commerce Committee unanimously. Um, it's going to have very broad support in the Senate. Right. Bipartisan. It's bipartisan, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the way the Senate works is everything requires unanimous consent. Uh, if you don't achieve unanimous consent, you have to go through a very arduous, time-consuming process for getting anything to the Senate floor, whether it's a nomination or it's legislation. Uh, so you have to invoke cloture uh, first on a motion to proceed to that legislation, and then a certain number of hours has to go by, and it's legislative hours so that can, in real life, take a period of days. Hmm. Then you have to vote on cutting off debate on the motion to proceed to a bill, which is extremely silly. That's another 30 hours. <laughs> uh-huh. um, then there are opportunities to offer amendments uh, unless you um, use procedural tools to cut off amendments, but then you'd have to file cloture on the final bill. That takes some extra time. And Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, controls the Senate floor, and he has his own priorities of what he wants passed, namely uh, Joe Biden's judicial nominations and a defense authorization bill. So he's not going to prioritize a rather parochial piece of legislation. I wouldn't say parochial, but a a piece of legislation that's relatively small scale like the one that Ted Cruz is proposing. Mm. So the outcome is by Rand Paul going to the Senate floor and objecting, that effectively kills this bill. 
in an ideal system, is it good that one senator's uh, rather, I guess I would say, quixotic uh, objections to this end up carrying the day because we have this process of unanimous consent? Right. I think that says a lot about the uh, relatively arcane procedures of the Senate, and it's just not very good for democracy. This seems like it is a bipartisan idea. On the merits, it seems to me to be uh, the correct thing to do to give people this constructive notice. And it's just weird that one senator can come to a floor and ba- uh, come to the floor and basically put a stop to this entire piece of legislation. So hmm. it's interesting for that reason to me. Um, I would highly recommend watching the video if you want some Cruz on Paul uh, <laughs> action. If you're into uh, professional In wrestling, figuratively among uh, politicians, right, so right. Uh, enjoy. Right. Aren't we in in a similar situation with some other legislation, some military stuff where there's a senator holding up, uh, I want to say, some some funding because he uh, is against the military uh, paying for soldiers to be able to travel to different states to get— Abortion health care, that, that sort of thing? Yeah, so it's even beyond that. This is Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama, uh-huh. a former coach of the Auburn football team, okay. I believe. Uh, so he's coach slash Senator Tuberville. Uh-huh. Uh, he's not just objecting to money. He is putting a permanent hold on all military executive nominations. And this includes promotions, which is normally a matter of course. Those go through the Senate via unanimous consent. Um, So a lot of uh, military personnel who are eligible for promotions, normally this would just be clean process. They go in front of the Senate floor. Um, I ask unanimous consent to have these uh, promotions confirmed, and there are almost never any objections. Senator Tuberville is putting a blanket objection on all of these promotions and nominations until— the Pentagon changes its policy on uh, reproductive health to match his political priorities. Huh. Uh, that also seems like kind of a less than optimal outcome that the military can be, can be completely handcuffed by one senator's whims here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he has that power because everything in the Senate does run by unanimous consent. There's simply not enough time for a Chuck Schumer or anybody else to file cloture on every single nominee and then go through the two- or three-day process uh, to even getting that nomination to the floor under normal procedures, it would take forever because there are so many potential nominations that need to be uh, confirmed. Mm. So it's an effective political tactic from Tuberville, but it's certainly not optimal for things like our military readiness, uh, that, that sort of thing. I think it's certainly a flaw in our constitutional system. The way to change it would be uh, what us in the political world would say as going nuclear, which is to change the Senate rules by a majority vote, preventing somebody like Tuberville from engaging in this type of action. It's not clear that there are a majority of senators who would be willing to do that, to take away the power of individual senators to put holds on nominations. Hmm. So we're kind of stuck in this holding pattern. But yeah, I mean, it is, I I think most people don't really realize that this is how the Senate works. Yeah. Uh, It's nearly just impossible to get anything done if you have one or two senators uh, who refuse to be cooperative. Ironically, when you have one or two senators, Ted Cruz is usually one of those two senators. Uh, (laughs) So it's just funny to see him on the other side uh, of an issue here, especially on something bipartisan. You know, for for every, you know, one person's bug is another person's feature— What's the feature side of this for folks who say this is the way the Senate should run? And are are there people saying this is exactly the way the Senate should run? Like, what's their argument? 
I think their argument is that uh, it's better for there to be consent. It's better for there to be agreement on things like nominations and removing that power from individual senators takes away the voices of that senator's constituents. That is not persuasive to me. I mean, I think a majority vote among 100 senators in an institution that, frankly, is already not very democratic. If the state of Wyoming has the same number of representatives as the state of California, uh, we know we're not dealing with a democratically representative body. And the fact that that's further constrained by these rules, I think, is is not uh, defensible, in my view. Yeah. Um, but certainly there are those who disagree. I mean, I think if you want to preserve a system in which every senator has leverage points, then there is uh, an incentive to maintain the status quo. And just because you're not using your leverage in the same way as Senator Tuberville doesn't mean that you don't want that leverage in the future. I mean— Right, right. How, how are you going to convince senators to give up power? Exactly. Right. So let's say you're somebody <laughs> like Ron Wyden, and he wants to go through a gambit like this in the future on his own hobby horse. Yeah. So let's say he has a major objection to the actions of— the security state during a, you know, Ron DeSantis administration. Right. He would have the power in that circumstance to do the same thing and put a hold on all CIA, NSA, um, DNI nominations until they change a policy uh, to please his interests. And I don't think senators necessarily want to give up that uh, that power. So it sort of forces people to the table, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it does. People have to, for the first time since he was a coach at Auburn, people actually have to listen to Tommy Tuberville. (laughs) Uh, Oh, man. (laughs) You have to reckon, and and I will not comment on his uh, coaching record either. But, yeah, I mean, he has a seat at the table now. And you have senators on both sides of the aisle and the administration bargaining with him. Just what do you want? What can we do to to, uh, get you to drop this hold? And— He's certainly enjoying his own power. And yeah, I think, he's dug in. Yep, that's yeah. that's the nature of the system that we've created. All right. Well, we'll have a link uh, in the show notes to uh, both the story and the YouTube clip of the uh, the rumble on the Senate floor, <laughs> as we're calling it on this podcast. Yep. Right, right. Well, my story this week comes from the folks over at Lawfare. This is actually uh, an article written by Ayelet Gordon Tapiero and Yotam Kaplan. And it's titled Unjust Enrichment by Algorithm. Uh, this is, uh, I'm, I guess it's fair to say, a novel approach to trying to put some um, restrictions on some of the big social media platforms here. Uh, and they're using, what they're suggesting is to use the legal principle of unjust enrichment to come at these Platforms, and, and they say in the article here, the, the concept of unjust enrichment revolves around the idea of unjust or wrongful gains and rests on the fundamental idea that misconduct must not be profitable. Before we dig into some of the details here, Ben, can you unpack this a little bit here? What, what are we talking about with unjust enrichment and uh, what makes it so novel in this case? So this is this is really fascinating as an issue. It was originally proposed uh, in a George Washington Law Review um, that's coming out next year. Mm. Uh, unjust enrichment is a common law concept that uh, people who engage in activities that are detrimental to others should not be able to reap the rewards of those transactions. Mm. We see it in uh, torts and in contracts. Uh, It is uh, something that courts have recognized as a uh, 
way to prevent people who have wronged others from getting rich off those alleged wrongs. Can you give me an example? Um, so it would be something like uh, a company drilling for oil uh, adjacent to somebody else's private property, and the oil spills onto that property and causes some type of noxious odor or damage. They might, the uh, plaintiffs in that case, might have a way of collecting some of the ill-begotten gains by that company by saying that they were unjustly enriched, that they were rewarded for their misconduct or malfeasance. The idea being that we don't want our legal system to reward misconduct. Misconduct should not be profitable. Uh, We've seen that in all different types of contexts. I remember it from just my intro uh, torts and, and contracts classes. So it is something that is a real concept in the legal system. Yeah. What's novel here is how it would apply uh, to a framework dealing with uh, algorithms and artificial intelligence. Mm. You would have to come up with some type of justiciable standard that shows that a company like Meta or whomever was actually engaging in misconduct. Uh, And what these companies would say is, A, they're not responsible for what's uh, posted on their platforms, I think that's backed up by Section 230. Yeah. Uh, and B, it's just really hard to define exactly what misconduct is in this context. I think the authors of this piece want it to be things like uh, misinformation, fake news. But I don't know if you've been paying attention to the news for the past several years, but that in and of itself is very controversial. Hmm. Who gets to make the decision about whether the news is fake or whether something is misinformation? And how do you prove that the conduct of these companies uh, has actually caused the alleged wrongs. I mean, you can certainly make circumstantial arguments saying that the algorithms on Facebook uh, and the fact that it led people to extremist content led to something like January 6th, but that would just be very hard to prove as the proximate cause. So to me, it just seems like a little bit of a stretch that a couple of law professors maybe got a little too high uh, on their own supply in their offices <laughs> and were trying to apply this uh, interesting legal theory in an area where it would just be very difficult to um, adjudicate, in my view. Huh. Well, they go through three main categories they lay out here. The, the first category is discriminatory presentation of job, housing, and credit ads. Uh, the second category is uh, when personalization allows platforms to manipulate vulnerable groups. And the third category is to strip wrongful gains uh, in which the platform behavior results in socially harmful acts. That covers a lot of stuff there. Yeah, it sure does. I love, by the way, the second example because they talk about how the personalization of platforms manipulates vulnerable groups through things like the Tide Pod Challenge, the Blackout Challenge, right. the Cinnamon Challenge, uh, all things where these went viral on uh, social media platforms. But ultimately, you know, I, I guess you could say they're vulnerable groups. People still did choose to ingest Tide Pods. So I don't know right. to the extent how you can hold Facebook or whomever accountable in a legal sense for unjust enrichment by simply being a conduit for which that information was shared. And I think this gets into Section 230 stuff. Yeah, but isn't it, I mean, isn't isn't the case here that um, what they're saying is that it's the algorithm that's kind of the sticky wicket here, where uh, it's the, when the algorithm notices that something is taking off and then starts to recommend it so that the platform gets more views and more views equals more profit, 
I think what they're trying to do here is hold them responsible for the algorithmic recommendation and the the profiting off of that algorithmic recommendation rather than, uh, I don't know, an, an organic growth of, of popularity of something. Oh, it's such a sticky issue. I mean, remember we talked about this with Gonzalez v. Google? Yeah. At what point is the algorithm actually content created by that platform? You know, how much of it is their own creation or how much of it is just— the simple service, like you see on any search engine, for example, of because you search this, we think you will like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at what point does that um, cut down on the shield of liability from something like Section 230? Mm-hmm. All I'm saying is I think that the companies would hire the most expensive lobbyist to fight <laughs> tooth and nail against this type of legal doctrine being adopted. Right. Uh, and I just – it's a really interesting theory. I I think uh, it's just something that is not entirely realistic, Mm. in my view. What about the the, I think their overarching principle here, their approach is if we believe that these platforms are doing harm, can we take away the profit motive that comes from what we're saying is that harmful, those harmful actions? Yeah, I mean, but everything they do is for profit, and in some sense, the harms are pretty diffuse. They're not always fairly traceable to the contact uh, to the um, actions of these these companies. It's very hard to prove that the wrongful action or the thing that hurt somebody else, including vulnerable populations, is directly attributable to what happened on one of these platforms. Mm. It's just hard to to make that work in practice. Do I think that in theory we should stop rewarding these companies from engaging in behavior that hurts other people? Uh, would I like to take away the profits of a company like Meta for making it so easy to provide uh, false information? Would I like to personally confiscate the wealth of Elon Musk, who has ruined my favorite social media platform? Yes, I would. Uh, I would like to uh, seize all of his assets for myself and and buy a nice yacht. Uh, I just don't think from a legal standpoint it's something that's going to be easy uh, to deal with in practice. And it's, it's novel in the way that the legal system would interact with um, the algorithms on these platforms. Mm. We don't know if it would, A, be an effective deterrence, um, and we don't know, uh, basically because we don't know how well the courts will hold these companies liable for some of the negative outcomes uh, that have alleged from their activities. I see. All right. Well, we will have a link to uh, this article in the show notes. And of course, we would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's caveat at n2k.com. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com.
Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Ken Cox. He is from the custom private cloud provider Hosterian. And our conversation centers on uh, what he describes as the dark side of AI and uh, some methods to better safeguard your privacy. Here's my conversation with Ken Cox. It's a very unique space. Um, One that I didn't foresee coming for a very, very long time. You know, 2006, Zuckerberg asked the world to put start using our real names on the internet. Prior to that, it never happened, right? And the world kind of ran breakneck speed towards that. At the time, you still couldn't correlate a whole lot of data back to an individual. And over the years, we continue to put more and more information online, and it just continued to grow and grow and grow. Still wasn't a significant issue until January of this year when... ChatGDP comes out and AutoGTP comes out and all of these tools that now can correlate massive amounts of data extremely quickly. And we didn't have that capability before these large language modules and and the pregenerative transformers. So it's a very unique space. The AI brings a ton of good tools to to the table, Um, lots of creative it helps with so many things across the board. But when you stop and think about privacy and my security and my freedoms as a human on this planet, it gets pretty scary pretty quickly on how a person that has access to a significant amount of data can pretty accurately predict a lot of things about a human. Hmm. Can you give us some specific examples of some of the, the use cases here that, that concern you? Uh, I, I think very simple one would be if the, and we know that our data is in the wrong hands. So if I have a whole bunch of information on a human, their name, their birth date, all of that, their kids' names, their kids' birthdays, their husband's birthday, their ex-husband, their credit card numbers, all of these things, I could predictively take some human behavior programming into an AI and be much more accurately at predicting their passwords. So you, you can envision going to a tool like ChatGPT and say, you know, give me the 10 most likely passwords for Dave Bittner or Ken Cox. Auto GTP is the bigger risk. How so? Um, it doesn't rely on ChatGDP and it's open and I can put it on any computer on the planet and it doesn't have any um, third-party regulations and it's completely open source. So basically spinning up your own instance of that kind of large language model at home. (laughs) You can do it on your desktop right now. Any um, Windows or Apple desktop can run AutoGTP and you can bypass all of the the restrictions that companies or governments, and and I'm not sure that companies or governments should be putting restrictions on these things or, you know, I'm... I don't know what the end solution is, but what I do know is that it's dangerous. So, you know, my goal is just to educate people on their privacy. I think long-term, you know, the Supreme Court has ruled repeatedly that we have a right to privacy on our personal computers and on our mobile devices. But the American public continues to enter into potentially legally binding contracts with third-party co- with companies, giving their data away at, at will, letting them use, use it however they choose. So I believe the big risk later in, 
is that the Supreme Court might rule, well, the American people don't really care about their privacy. Therefore, they have no reasonable expectation to it on their personal devices or on their computers. So we could lose that. Yeah. My sense is that a lot of people have sort of a sense of resignation when it comes to this. You know, we're we're presented with these multi-page, dozens of hundreds of page EULAs, you know, and and no one reads them. Uh, and most, and even if you did read it, chances are you wouldn't understand it. And yet, in order to get to the thing we want to get to, we have to click through that we agree. To me, this doesn't stand the scrutiny of being a, a meaningful contract, and, and yet here we are. But you are, in many cases, potentially giving your data away to publicly traded companies who have a legal obligation to do the most profitable thing with your data possible, which would be sell it or use it to advertise to you and use these AI engines to do whatever they see fit with it. And until I really sat down and thought about the amount of information that I put on the internet over the past 20 something years, and I feel pretty safe about a lot of it. You know, I get to grow up in the eighties. So I grew up pre cell phones and, you know, pre cameras and videos of everything. And I got to grow up in an internet world that, Vlogging every single interaction wasn't feasible, but today it is. The hard drive space is there. And then for a good 15 years, we got to live in a world where the processing power wasn't capable enough to do anything significantly dangerous with that amount of data. Um, But now we're in a world where that technology is there. So how do we deal with that? Yeah. What do you propose? What are some of the options we have available to us? So one thing that we've created to help this problem, and, you know, again, I'll date myself. I'm a kid from the 80s, and knowing ha- knowing is half the battle. So we created something called PPGS, which is a privacy policy grading system. You can find it at ppgs.global. We wrote a, a rubric system, uh, so a grading level, A through F, for a privacy policy. We allow a 13-year-old child to go to a website and give their privacy away And we expect them to be able to read a legal document and understand the possible ramifications of giving a corporate company personal private information about themselves and let that company store it for an undefinite amount of time and use it to their best interest. When you think about how this looks for 13-year-old over 20 years, that's a pretty scary thought. So... We wanted to create a rubric system that a 13-year-old understood, an A through an F system, right? So we do risk assessments all the time, and we have to do risk assessment probability versus the catastrophic risk potential. So we're allowing these people to, anybody to sign these contracts, and we're not properly advising them of their risks. And I think that that's wrong. I don't think you should have to have a legal degree to send an email. What about what some of the other parts of the world are doing? Things like GDPR, is that... Do we need a version of that here? My thought is I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of capitalism. I don't know how it works and with the amount of AI and robotics that we're going to see over the next 10 or 15 years. I, I think that the market should fix this problem before the government has to step in. Uh, I think the market uh, tools like PPGS and other providers can start taking accountability for uh, how they handle data before a government steps in and makes those decisions. I, tr- I trust the market more than I trust the government to do that. Is it fair to say, though, in this case, it seems to me we have ample evidence that perhaps the market is not self-correcting, at least not up to this point. 
I agree with you, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) And that's, you know, that's why we're doing our part to to make that attempt. I think that um, for us to to grade the process a million million privacy policies, that wasn't possible for us prior to this AI movement, right? Before Mm. GPT was really um, at 3.5, did we have the capability to write robots that went out and searched for privacy policies and publicly facing documents that 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 people are signing and giving away their data rights to, um, get that and process it, read it, and then s- display a result. Things that we do uh, a a rubric, so we give a letter grade, and then we also give a basic synopsis of the privacy policy written at a ninth grade level, just one paragraph that gives the risk. If you share your data with this company, then you could uh, potentially they could potentially publish your data forever. What are your recommendations for individuals then, for folks who are concerned about protecting their privacy? Any words of wisdom? Do some research. If you if the service is free, you're the customer or you're the product, right? So if you're if you're using an absolutely free service, understand what you're doing, right? Take some time to educate yourself on you know how companies might use your data. And I'm not saying don't use these services. I'm just saying be careful of the information you share on them, specifically for our youth. I'm terrified of, you know, decisions that a 15-year-old person would make in their life online and how that could be brought back against them later in life. It's just a terrifying thing. And now we have the storage capabilities and the processing power to do that. Yeah, I mean, it really is a different world. You know, I, I, you, it sounds like you and I are, are around the same age. Like you, I grew up in the 80s, and uh, I think I, I'm thankful every day that there wasn't the type of recording that there is today with the, the things that we did and the things we got away with or the things we thought we got away with that we probably didn't. I didn't get away didn't. with much. <laughs> but there are those who say that, you know, with each generation, these sorts of changes happen, and this upcoming generation will adapt I guess one of my concerns is that it seems like, you know, from a regulatory, from a legislative point of view, that's all reactive. And so these folks who are coming up today, these kids coming up today, they're, a group of them are going to have to suffer the consequences before things are put in place to protect them. I think that we are in a knee-jerk moment right now. I believe that if you've been in IT for a period of time, you kind of understood how long large queries took and the and how challenging it was to uh, use caching engines to display large number of data, large amounts of data. And even, you know, we work with some global 500 companies and they use uh, like Apache Spark to process large amounts of data. Until GPT came out, it was wildly expensive to do a fraction of what you can do today. So I think it caught a lot of people off guard Unfortunately, I think a lot of VC money ran to AI projects right away. And I believe that we can utilize AI to fix a lot of the problems with Internet 2.0. I don't think Internet 2.0 is going to go away for a very long time. Services like email and websites are going to be around forever. They might be implemented in a Web 3.0 interface, but those services are going to exist for a long time. And I would like to see companies using the AI capabilities to help harden and make those Internet 2.0 services even better. Are there any things that parents can be doing to to help protect their kids? They need to learn, set healthy boundaries, educate themselves as much as possible. 
this is not a situation that's going to go away. Yeah. It's out of the bag. There's no stopping it. I don't believe that a government can stop it. I don't think that it's, it's going to go. It's, it's too powerful not to. And it's, and it's open source. So it's already forked. It's already all over the planet. Yeah, my wife and I were joking recently about how when uh, our kids were coming up, we we would say that, you know, and when it came to locking down certain things on the internet, you know, trying to keep their eyes off of things, like we between the two of us, we might be able to outsmart them, but there's no way we're going to outsmart them and all of their friends combined. And <laughs> and that was before we had these kinds of readily accessible tools. Yes, and and the tool, I think they're going to be give us so much greatness, um, but the the negative is I, I understand what nefarious people do on the internet, right? I've been on the internet for a very long time as a hosting provider uh, and and with startups. So it's not a fair place to live. Where do you suppose we're headed here? And Any thoughts on how things might um, shake out? I mean, short term, we're going to see, I mean, we've already seen a, a huge reduction in staff, right? Programming jobs are gone for the most part, I think the the jack of all trades position is going to be a wildly valued position. Somebody that can use AI to orchestrate multiple different facets of technology. Someone that can use it to harden an operating system, write pieces of software, and integrate it into uh, text, images, and, and paint that whole picture. So I think the the producing products using AI or AI orchestrators is going to be a very valued position moving forward. Long term, I I believe we're going to end up with utopia or dystopia, and I hope it's utopia, but I think it's going to be a bumpy ride. Yeah, yeah. So folks say uh, we're we're hoping for Star Trek, but we might end up with Blade Runner. <laughs> and, and, and I, you know, the the fact that it is open source means that both sides get to fight for what they believe is right. Hmm. And if you if you have the desire, I think that you can, you know, get your own instance of auto GTP up, or even if you want to create your own open AI stack, that would be more um, cumbersome to do. But you could and uh, you know build your own stack and and do whatever you wanted with it and teach it however you want. What do you think? It was a really interesting interview. I mean, I'm very intrigued by uh, the product that his uh, organization has produced, mm-hmm. which would, uh, in lieu of actually having to read these EULAs or terms and conditions, would have kind of a checklist system where somebody could research it themselves and uh, let the uh, fancy lawyers read that information and summarize it and provide some type of score. I think that sounds really, really uh, like a major improvement in theory. There's still kind of an equity question there because the most the people who would most need that kind of information are going to be the least likely to seek it out. Right. Um, but it was a it was a very interesting interview. Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to Ken Cox from Hosterian for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at caveat at n2k.com. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. This show is edited by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.